Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. This is the third episode of our miniseries on the movies either greenlit or acquired by British producer David Putnam during his 15-month run as the head of Columbia Pictures in 1986 and 1987. Our first episode got into the background of who David Putnam was, why a studio like Columbia might be interested in such an out-of-left-field choice for studio head, and why Putnam would leave the position after only 15 months on the job. While our second episode looked at the first 16 films of what some in the press at the time sardonically called Putnam's Orphans to be released between August 1987 and June 1988. Originally, the plan was to finish off the remaining Putnam Orphans on this episode and include a summary of his life after Columbia, as well as my personal commentary about the films discussed during the series, their continual mistreatment after a third of a century, and the state of the film industry as a whole. In case, you know, you weren't sure where I stood on this yet. But while finishing my research for this episode, I discovered two more films that needed to be covered that were mysteries in my original research, as well as several movies that were in development at Putnam's Columbia that would subsequently be canceled by Don Steele. So now I find myself needing to turn what should have been one very long episode into two more manageable episodes. So let's get started. The first film we'll be talking about today is Ken Anakin's The New Adventures of Pippi Longstocking. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a smaller lad growing up in Los Angeles in the mid to late 1970s, the Swedish Pippi Longstocking movies featuring Inger Nelson played every few weeks on a Saturday afternoon on KTLA Channel 5's Family Film Festival hosted by Tom Hatton on a cycle along with The Little Rascals, the Paramount comedies of Jerry Lewis, The Phantom Tollbooth, and Gay Prix, among others. I remember all these details 45 years later, but I don't remember a dang thing about those four Pippi movies I easily watched 15 to 20 times each. But I am sure this wasn't only happening in Los Angeles, and I'm equally certain that it was this kind of nascent Gen X childhood nostalgia that would lead to the production of this new film, a joint venture between Columbia and Svenk Film Industry the Swedish production company who had produced most of the adaptations of author Astrid Lindgren's books over the past 60 years, including the Pippi Longstocking movies. At first, the author was hesitant to have an American company make a movie of a character she considered to be her own daughter. But she would be won over by one of the young daughters of producer Gary Melman, who personally petitioned Lindgren in Stockholm and won the author over by hugging her during their introduction. Although the film would ostensibly take place in Sweden, the movie itself would be shot in Jacksonville, Florida. 12-year-old Tammy Aaron, from nearby Miami, would be cast in the title role, after the filmmakers auditioned more than 8,000 young ladies in Canada, the United Kingdom, and the United States. The elements of a Pippi Longstocking origin story are there. A young girl with long red hair done up in crazy long pigtails returns to her family home in a small village after her father goes missing, and she has a series of wacky adventures with a brother and sister duo from town, as well as her pet monkey, Mr. Nilsson, and her horse, Alonzo. The film would also feature the amazing Eileen Brennan as the well-meaning operator of a town orphanage, actor and future Adam Sandler go-to director Dennis Dugan as the father of Pippi's friends, 
the great character actor John Shuck as Pippi's father, and Dick Van Patten as a local inventor. Production on the $10 million movie began in May 1987, and Columbia would set a late summer 1988 release date. Ahead of its July 29th opening day, the film would have its first public playdates in Tokyo in March, and would have its American premiere at a local theater in Jacksonville. It would be polite to say the reviews were mixed, but most critics were also kind enough to point out that the movie wasn't really aimed at adults, and that small kids would probably be quite entertained. But in order for that to happen, parents needed to take their small kids to the theater. They didn't. Opening on 844 screens, The New Adventures of Pippi Longstocking could only eke out $933,000 in ticket sales its opening weekend. By the second weekend, most theaters still playing the film would cut their screenings of the film down to one or two matinees, and by the fourth week, it would only be found at the dollar houses, where it would play for another 18 weeks before sailing off into the sunset with $3.57 million in ticket sales. The following Friday, August 5th, would see the opening of Ken Quapis's Vibes. The film would mark the acting debut of pop star Cindy Lauper, which would cause some issues with one of Columbia's most valued stars at the time. When Vibes first started its life at the studio, Ghostbusters star and writer Dan Aykroyd would be cast as Nick, one of two psychics who were hired to find the location of a lost Incan city somewhere in the Ecuadorian mountains that is said to be hiding a great treasure. The high-concept logline for the film would be romancing the Ghostbusters in the Temple of Doom, which would make sense for Aykroyd, who appeared in two of those three films. When Putnam met with director Quapis and Lopper, his choice of the other psychic Sylvie, Putnam was excited for the unusual casting choice. Aykroyd was... not. After meeting with Lopper... Aykroyd did not want to work with the first-time actress, but Putnam made sure Aykroyd knew Lopper was his choice for Sylvie and that the actor would either work with her on the film or would not work on it at all. A few weeks later, Jeff Goldblum would be cast as Nick and Peter Falk as the man who hires the pair to find the Lost City. The remainder of the cast would include a who's who of both popular character actors like Michael Lerner and young up-and-comers like Julian Sands, Elizabeth Pena, Park Overall, Max Perlich, and John Kapalos on the younger side of the spectrum, along with Steve Buscemi as Sylvie's boyfriend. Production would begin on location in Ecuador in April 1987, shooting for three weeks before returning to Los Angeles for another nine weeks. When it came time to begin promotions for the film, the marketing team at Columbia made the unusual choice to place Lopper in first position on the posters and newspaper ads. They also made the unusual decision to only have Lopper contribute one song called Hole in My Heart to the movie's soundtrack and then not include that song on the movie's soundtrack album. Columbia would give the movie some leeway, provided its star power in Goldblum and Lopper, opening the movie on 1,003 theaters on August 5th with a fairly strong ad purchase behind it but audiences flat out rejected the film and it would come in 17th place with a paltry $916,000. A performance so poor, Columbia would not even release second week box office information. After a few weeks, 
Vibes was out of theaters with a final gross of under $2 million. Even if you are a huge fan of 80s movies, there's a good chance you don't know who Amos Poe is by name. You may know him from his 1976 documentary, The Blank Generation, which captured the birth of the New York punk and new wave scene. Or you may know him from his gritty 1984 New York drama, Alphabet City, with Vincent Spano. Poe had been capturing the underbelly of New York City life for more than a decade when he came up with an idea about a family patriarch, a retired Hollywood screenwriter who unites all of the members of his family for his birthday. Not your typical Amos Poe movie idea, especially one that had no sex or violence associated with it. And it definitely wasn't a typical Amos Poe move to accept a deal with a Hollywood studio to get it made. And it most definitely wasn't the Amos Poe way to get a cast that included the likes of Burt Lancaster, Patricia Clarkson, Francis Conroy, John Glover, Pam Greer, and Bill Pullman. But there he was, on August 4th, 1987, filming his first studio movie on a set in the Hamptons, with a dream cast and a number of newcomers, including Kevin Spacey, David Hyde Pierce, and, in their film debuts, Sarah Rue and Macaulay Culkin, who would be celebrating his seventh birthday during filming. Well, that's not 100% true. By the end of the second week, Amos Poe had already fallen behind on the schedule and was close to going over his allotted $3 million budget for the entire shoot, with several weeks of filming still to do. One of Putnam's last acts as the head of Columbia Pictures would be to regrettably remove Amos Poe from the movie the filmmaker had hoped would catapult him into the upper echelons of Hollywood cinema. Production would shut down for a couple weeks while the studio looked for another director. Burt Lancaster suggested industry veteran Daniel Petrie, whose 28-year career included the 1961 Sidney Poitier movie A Raisin in the Sun, the 1976 Sam Elliott Thirst Trap Lifeguard, and the 1981 Paul Newman cop drama Fort Apache, the Bronx. Petrie and Lancaster had planned to make a movie a couple years earlier, before the financing fell through, and they had been looking for something to work on together. By September 1st, Culkin was now seven, and Daniel Petrie would be on set working with this amazing cast, and the production would be completed at the end of the month with no further issues, and only slightly over budget. Editing on the film lasted throughout the fall and winter of 1987. Petrie would stick pretty much to Poe's script during shooting, but after assembling his work print, he was uncomfortable about one of the subplots involving a relationship between the Lancaster character and his housekeeper played by Greer. The director felt it was the weakest part of the story and ended up cutting Greer completely out of the film. Columbia set a September 2, 1988 release date and sent the film out to five theaters, including the Regency Cinemas, a few blocks above Columbus Circle in New York City, and four theaters in Los Angeles, including my late beloved Beverly Center Cinemas. Janet Maslin of the New York Times and Michael Wilmington of the Los Angeles Times both had issues with the film but gave plenty of praise to Mr. Lancaster and several members of the cast. The newspaper ads, however, would include quotes from CBS TV's Los Angeles film critic Gary Franklin and Jeffrey Lyons from Sneak Previews, which is who studios would quote when you couldn't get a good quote from a Janet Maslin or a Michael Wilmington. 
The film would have a good weekend, grossing a healthy $60,000 from those five theaters. But as we've heard before on this miniseries, and we'll definitely hear again, there was no attempt to expand on this early success. The film would never play in more than eight theaters on any given weekend, and it would exit theaters after nine weeks and only $187,000 in ticket sales. Kevin Reynolds, at the start of his career, seemed to have quite a bit of luck. He was good friends with an up-and-coming actor named Kevin Costner, who would star in Reynolds' first movie, the 1985 road comedy Fandango. Fandango would be produced by Steven Spielberg, who was partially reminded of his own early film Amblin when he read the Reynolds script. But then Reynolds turned in his cut of the movie, and Spielberg would take his name off the film, for reasons previously discussed on our episode last year about Steven Spielberg as producer. Fandango would quickly open and close in theaters when it was released, and Reynolds decided he'd need to make something a bit more gritty. And he would find that in a play by William Mastro Simone called Nanawatai. In 1980, Mastro Simone had seen a documentary about the Soviet military campaign in Afghanistan and felt compelled to travel to the region and embed himself with a group of Afghan rebel fighters for a week. The play would first be performed in Norway in 1984, before making its American debut in Los Angeles a year later. Reynolds would see the play, and knew he had found his next film. Mastro Simone would spend the next year adapting his play for the screen, and Reynolds and producer Dale Pollock would try to set the project up with David Geffen's eponymous production company, which had a long-term distribution deal with Warner Brothers, and for whom Pollock had been an executive for some time. But Geffen would pass. Pollock would soon become an executive at A&M Films, the production company arm of musician Herb Alpert's multimedia company, who had recently produced John Hughes's The Breakfast Club, and Pollock would bring the now-titled The Beast of War with him. Pollock, knowing David Putnam was looking for films that could be exploited on a global scale, would make his way back to the then Burbank Studios, where Warner Brothers and Columbia shared office space and sound stages at the time. Pollock correctly pictured Putnam's ability to see the film for what it was, a lower-budgeted war movie that could be sold around the world, and an $8 million budget was secured. Reynolds would begin production on The Beast of War in Israel in April 1987. The Israeli government was happy to have a Hollywood production shooting within its borders and helped the production by supplying a number of Russian tanks and weapons that had been captured during one of their wars with Syria. Stephen Bauer, who had played the lead role of Taj when the play opened in Los Angeles, was signed to play the same role in the film. Other actors cast for the film include Jason Patrick, who had shot The Lost Boys the previous summer, Stephen Baldwin, getting to play his first movie character with an actual name, and Deer Hunter co-star George Zunza. But before shooting began, Reynolds and his team would put his cast through the now-expected for a military movie, Mini Boot Camp. Although there were multiple boot camps, depending on the cast, the actors portraying the Afghans would be taught to speak their dialogue in the proper Pushtu regional dialect, while the actors playing the Russian soldiers would spend 10 days in the Israeli desert going through physical endurance and military tank operation trainings. Production would continue for two and a half months, utilizing locations including the Red Sea. 
Reynolds would return to Los Angeles for post-production, and the film was scheduled for a February 1988 release. After Putnam's exit from the studio, the release date would be changed a number of times, from February to April to mid-September to early October, before finally settling on a September 18th release in New York, Los Angeles, and Toronto. But before opening, there would be screenings in early September at the Deauville and Toronto Film Festivals with its new shortened title, The Beast. But, like many of the Putnam films, The Beast would be sparsely released and under-promoted. It would never play in more than 20 theaters in any given week, and its final box office total was an anemic $161,000. Now, if there was one film in all this bunch that had the best chance of becoming a major success, it would have been David Seltzer's punchline. Whenever I get a cart, why is it that one wheel always goes... (laughs) I mean, I've wondered about it, haven't you? This lady's laughing here. I'm home! I'm home! Don't come near me! I'm home! Is this going to be every day now, Lila? And every night now? What do you want? A wife. For dinner. What do you want for dinner? You take the pill and you put it on your tongue, and when they come around to check up on it, you insist it wasn't in the cup. And it wasn't in the cup. I can't fuck out. You already have. Is this the kind of guy you are? You got to throw your own roommate out into the cold? Sleep in your club. You've done it before. It gets cold. They turn off the heat at night. But people with satellite dishes, you have to make the neighborhood look like an Air Force base? I can live without Green Acres from Atlanta. I don't hate people with satellite dishes. I've got laughs. Fine, then take them and go home. I want to learn. Lady, it takes every night. Six clubs a night, all night. What do you want from me? Nothing. Just go back to New Jersey and clean house and tell jokes into a vacuum cleaner hand. I am good enough. No, you're not, Lila. You're not funny. So hang out with me tonight. I'll teach you something about being funny. No one laughs at that woman! That woman is not funny! When you do it right and you make people laugh, you're doing something that no one else could do quite the same. Sally Field and Tom Hanks in the most unforgettable performances of their careers. After his success writing the screenplay for the original 1976 The Omen, Seltzer would begin a long, strange trip from horror writer to comedy director. He had originally come up with the idea for Punchline about a talented young comic as he helps a housewife who wants to break into stand-up comedy in the late 1970s. The script would float around Hollywood for years, first at the Theatrical Motion Picture Division of the ABC Television Network, and then at Columbia, where Private Benjamin director Howard Zeff was attached to make it before he decided to make Unfaithfully Yours instead. It would be several more years before producer Daniel Melnick, whose credits included All That Jazz, Altered States, and Footloose, found the script amongst what is known as a dead pile, in the script vault at Columbia. 
He liked what he read and contacted Seltzer, who had just made his first film as a director, the romantic teen comedy Lucas, at Fox. Seltzer was happy to see Punchline finally be on someone's radar, but he, Seltzer, really wanted to direct it. That would be fine with Columbia, but it would have to be done without any major stars, and the budget could not go over $8 million. Melnick wasn't pleased with this, so he worked with one of the Columbia executives to get the script to Sally Field, the two-time Oscar-winning actress who had a production deal with the studio. She read it, and she not only agreed to star as the housewife wannabe comedian, but she also wanted to help produce it. Columbia was on board with that, and they would let the budget go to $15 million if they could find a second star to play the male lead. Enter Tom Hanks. At this point in his career, Hanks was known for being a very funny physical comedic actor, but many of his movies outside of Splash were neither critical nor commercial successes. Hanks had started steering his career towards more comedic drama material, such as the 1986 Gary Marshall film Nothing in Common with Jackie Gleason and Eva Marie Saint, or straight-out drama like the 1995 Israeli-American film Every Time We Say Goodbye. And he saw Punchline as a natural evolution in his career. So after he was done filming the big-screen adaptation of the 1960s cop show Dragnet, Hanks threw himself firsthand into the role here. And at first he struggled. Just after New Year's 1987, Hanks wrote a five-minute stand-up act and presented it on stage at the famed Comedy Store on Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood. Do you remember that scene in Broadcast News where Albert Brooks finally gets to read the news on network television and he starts to sweat profusely? That's what Hanks said he experienced when he went on stage. He would bomb out over the course of one minute and 40 seconds. His material, he said, lacked any theme or focus, and his self-esteem fell to the floor. But he would keep up at it. He would go to several clubs every night, working on new material with up-and-coming comedian and actor Barry Sobel, who would be rewarded with a small part in the movie. And over the course of two months, Hanks would appear at more than 30 comedy clubs in Los Angeles and New York City until he felt he looked and felt like a stand-up comedian. With a supporting cast that included John Goodman as the husband who doesn't appreciate his wife's comedic extracurricular activities, Brazil co-star Kim Greist, filmmakers and actors Mark Riddell and Paul Mazursky, and comedians Taylor Negron and Damon Wayans, Punchline would begin production in New York City on March 9, 1987, for two weeks of location shooting before moving to Los Angeles for another eight weeks of interior shooting. During production in both New York City and Los Angeles, Hanks would regularly continue working comedy clubs when he wasn't needed on set. While this film was in post-production, Dragnet became a surprise box office success, and the pressure was on Seltzer to prepare the film for a Christmas 1987 release. But a serious movie about stand-up comics, that's a very fine line to walk. And Seltzer would inform Putnam in late September that he didn't think he'd have the movie ready for Christmas. One of the last things Putnam would do as Studio Head would be to move the release date from Christmas Day to late January. Just before Thanksgiving, 
Seltzer would inform new studio head Don Steele that he didn't think that he'd make the late January date either. Maybe February or March 1988, she asked. Maybe. The new year would arrive, and word would start to spread around town that the film Hanks made after Punchline, the Penny Marshall comedy drama Big, was coming together quite well and had the chance of becoming a sleeper hit. So Steele would tell Seltzer she was going to position the film to come out in the fall after Big had played out in theaters over the summer. Seltzer would deliver his final cut in late spring, and Steele felt that this was their strongest candidate for award season glory for 1988, and would schedule a platform release beginning in Chicago, Los Angeles, New York City, and Toronto beginning September 30th. The reviews were mostly good for the film, and in that first weekend on four screens, the film would gross an astounding $160,000. The only film in theaters that weekend that would come anywhere close to Punchline's $40,000 per screen average was Clint Eastwood's musical biography of Charlie Parker, Bird, which would gross over $27,000 from a single play date at the Plaza Theater in Midtown Manhattan. Excited by these initial grosses, Columbia abandoned the planned awards platform release and threw Punchline into another 750 theaters for the long Columbus Day holiday weekend. The film would come in second place with $5.2 million. Another 150 screens would be added for the third week, but the film would drop to third with $3.5 million. And although Columbia would continue to support the film, it would start sputtering out soon thereafter, dropping out of the top 10 in its seventh week. After 14 weeks, Columbia would stop tracking the film with $21 million in ticket sales accounted for. But the film would continue to play in small venues in Los Angeles and New York City, just in case it secured some Oscar nominations. It didn't. The only award the film would pick up would be a Best Actor Award for Tom Hanks from the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, which would be shared with his performance in Big. Another film Columbia had some Oscar hopes for was the second film from playwright-turned-filmmaker David Mamet. Mamet's first film, The Brilliant House of Cards, had a botched release from Orion Pictures in the fall of 1987, and the director was hoping being part of a real movie studio would get him the support he needed. For Things Change the Chicago native would team with another Chicago-born icon, the writer and illustrator Shel Silverstein, to concoct a crime comedy story about an elderly shoeshine man who is hired by the mafia to take the rap for a murder, and the low-level gangster who is assigned to give the old man a weekend to remember before he heads to prison. And although this would only be Mamet's second film, he was already establishing a team of repertory players, regular actors from his stage productions, who also appeared in House of Cards, including Joe Mantegna, Ricky Jay, J.T. Walsh, and William H. Macy. Don Amici, the 78-year-old actor who had just won an Academy Award for Cocoon two years earlier, had been cast as one of the elderly Mafia Dons seen late in the film. But when Amici met Mamet and Mantegna for the first time, they decided to put Amici in the lead role. And why wouldn't you? If you're smart enough to put Don Amici in your movie, 
you make sure he plays the best part possible. Filming would begin in Lake Tahoe in mid-September 1987, before moving back to Chicago in late October. The film would also be the first screen appearance for Felicity Huffman, who would later become Mrs. William H. Macy and future Marvel bedrock Clark Gregg. The movie would make its world premiere at the Venice Film Festival on August 31, 1988, where Amici and Mantegna were awarded the Volpe Cup, the festival's top acting prize, before making its American premiere in New York City on October 7th, a gala screening at the Lincoln Center to benefit Columbia University's School of Arts Film Division. The film would open in 99 theaters across the nation on October 21st, and would pull in a respectable $600,000 opening weekend. But although the film would never expand any wider than those initial 99 theaters, the film would manage to hold on to most of those theaters until Christmas week, and finish with $3.5 million in ticket sales. A decent sum, considering the lack of support from the studio. But alas, this would not be Mammoth's year at the Oscars either. In fact, the only Oscar Columbia would be nominated for at the 61st Academy Awards at all would be for Best Foreign Language Film for Istvan Svabo's Hanyusin, which wouldn't be released until March 10th, 1989, in the United States. We'll get there in a moment. In fact, for Columbia in 1989, it would be a strange year. The first movies made under Don Steele would start to hit theaters in early summer, while there were still nearly a dozen Putnam films just sitting around. One of the strange things about Hollywood is that sometimes it's better to release an unwanted film into a handful of theaters and take the right down than it would to just bury it. Every month you don't release a movie, that's more money going out the door in interest payments with nothing coming in. It's also a factor into why Warner Brothers in late 2020 decided to start releasing their movies in theaters and on their HBO Max streaming service at the t same time. Because even if a studio was only paying 1% of interest per month to their credit line holders, that's $10 million a month when you have a billion dollars worth of storytelling just sitting around doing nothing. So to get those Putnam films out once and for all, was exactly what Columbia would do in 1989. In fact, of the 23 movies Columbia would distribute in 1989, only eight of them were Columbia Pictures movies greenlit or acquired by Don Steele. Another three of them were the final films from the output deal they had with the Weintraub Entertainment Group, who was the subject of our very first podcast back in July 2019. And the rest were the Putnams. The first Putnam film to be released in 1989 would start its life as a sequel to the surprise 1985 hit film Jagged Edge, entitled Smoke, with Glenn Close expected to reprise her role as lawyer Teddy Barnes. This time, she would take on the case of a cop who is framed for murder. But, depending on who you spoke to, why Jagged Edge 2 never happened, you'll get a different answer. Producer Martin Ransahoff says Putnam didn't want to make a Jagged Edge 2 because Putnam just did not want to make movies as crass as sequels to popular films. An argument which holds some water since he would also be seemingly against the sequels to Ghostbusters and Karate Kid. 
Putnam would say he doesn't have anything against sequels per se, and that he would have been very happy to make a Jagged Edge 2 had the script that was turned in been any good. Ransohoff decided that the script was good enough to be its own movie without the Jagged Edge connection, and he had the screenwriter rewrite it to remove all references to characters and situations from Jagged Edge. Ransohoff submitted the script to Putnam, and Putnam was okay enough with it to give it the go-ahead to make it. Ironically, just before the movie went into production in September 1987, and just before he would churn in his resignation, Putnam met with Ransohoff to maybe find a different story that could be churned into Jagged Edge 2. Ransohoff would hire new writers to develop that film, but a proper sequel would never materialize. Michael Crichton, the best-selling author and filmmaker, had, to this point, never made a movie that he wasn't also the writer of, either as the screenwriter or as the writer of the novel for which the movie was based on. Crichton had just finished writing his next bestseller, Sphere, and needed something to take his mind off working on his next book, something he had been working on for years about bringing dinosaurs back to life. But when the offer to direct Smoke came in, he took it. Teresa Russell would take the role originally intended for Glenn Close, Ned Beatty as the Robert Loggia doppelganger, and Burt Reynolds as the accused police officer. But where to shoot the film? At first, the 10-week shoot was expected to happen around Seattle and Vancouver in September 1987, but at the last minute, Crichton settled on Boston, Montreal, and Toronto. Maybe Crichton should have stuck with only directing movies he had written. David Kerr of the Chicago Tribune called the film a feeble thriller and the worst film of Crichton's career, noting that there was not an ounce of commitment or conviction in the film, while Michael Wilmington of the Los Angeles Times would note that it was a thriller that just didn't thrill. Janet Maslin of the New York Times at least had something nice to say about Burt, but not nice enough to warrant a message in the newspaper ads. There would be no quotes from any critics. It would be simply advertised as being from the producer of Jagged Edge. Opening on 691 screens on January 27th, the now-titled Physical Evidence would gross $1.78 million, which would just barely put it in the top 10. In its second week, the film would add four screens, but lose more than 65% of its first weekend audience, and it would be gone from most first-run theaters after that second week. It'd hang around some dollar houses for a few months, but it could not muster more than $3.56 million in ticket sales. Putnam rescued two films from the ash heap of Paramount Pictures, the first being Joseph Rubin's legal drama True Believer. This would be the first produced screenplay for writer Wesley Strick, who would become one of the hottest writers in Hollywood in the coming decade, either creating or adapting the screenplays for Frank Marshall's Arachnophobia, Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear, Tim Burton's Batman Returns, Mike Nichols' Wolf, and Philip Noyce's The Saint. James Woods would star as Eddie Dodd, a former civil liberties lawyer who had switched sides and now defends drug dealers, and Robert Downey Jr. as his clerk, a recent law school graduate who was drawn to a case about a young Korean man 
who has been imprisoned for a gang murder in New York City's Chinatown district. Margaret Collin, Kurtwood Smith, Luis Guzman, Kurt Fuller, and Graham Beckel would round out the cast. Based in part on the life of San Francisco civil rights lawyer Tony Serra, who successfully defended Huey P. Newton in a 1970 murder trial, and his ability to win an acquittal for a Korean immigrant who had been convicted of murder in 1973 and sentenced to life imprisonment, True Believer would mostly film across the Bay Bridge in Oakland for two months during March and April 1988. Originally planned for a Christmas 88 release, the film would be held until February 17, 1989, in part to give some breathing room to physical evidence, where it would open to acceptable reviews, including a three-star review from Roger Ebert, which would praise Woods as always being hypnotically watchable. The opening weekend box office wasn't too bad, $3 million from 897 screens, especially considering this four-day President's Day weekend had no less than six other movies opening on at least 500 screens. And the film would hold its own for a couple of weeks, dropping only 35% of its audience from week one to week two, and from week two to week three. But the film would start losing theaters soon thereafter, as the spring of 1989 was loaded with a record number of new releases from the major studios. After 10 weeks, True Believer would gross $8.74 million. Not a great number, so it would be kind of strange when Columbia would adapt the movie into a television series in 1991, Eddie Dodd, with Treat Williams as Dodd. But the show would only last six episodes before being canceled by ABC. Okay, now we're at Hanusen. The movie tells the true story of Austrian Jewish publicist, charlatan, and clairvoyant performer Erich Jan Hanusen, who was acclaimed in his lifetime as a hypnotist, mentalist, occultist, and astrologer. One of his most famous feats of clairvoyance was the prediction of the Reichstag fire in February 1933, a decisive event which allowed the recently appointed Chancellor of Germany, Adolf Hitler, to seize absolute power. Hanusin would be assassinated by members of the SA, the Nazi party's original paramilitary wing, four weeks after the Reichstag fire. Svabo and his regular collaborator, Klaus Maria Brandauer, would work with regular Ingmar Bergman collaborator, Erik Josefsson, to tell the story. It would be the third time in eight years that a Svabo movie would be Hungary's submission to the best foreign language Oscar race after 1981's Mephisto, which would win, and 1985's Colonel Riedel, which would not. But American audiences would not embrace Hanusin the way they previously had embraced Mephisto or Colonel Riedel. The film would only gross a total of $82,635 during its short American release. Hanusin would not be the only Putna movie to get a theatrical release on March 10th. That second film would be Terry Gilliam's The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. From the director of Time Bandits and Brazil, a new movie full of noise. <laughs> Flying objects. Trust me, madam. Your underwear is in good hands. 
By September 1987, when Munchausen would begin production at the famed Cinecita Studios in Rome, Gillian had been through the ringer trying to get this film made. He was already exhausted from the battle with the Universal Studios over Brazil, and now he was in another battle with a studio over budgeting. When Munchausen was originally set up at Fox, Gilliam had budgeted the special effects heavy film at $35 million. When Fox decided not to move forward, Putnam, a fan of the sole American member of Monty Python's Flying Circus, would pick the film up, but said they could only finance it to $25 million. Gilliam and co-writer Charles McEwen would take out entire segments of the script in order to meet the newer, lower budget. But there would still be problems. Rome was suffering through an unusually late heat wave, which required the film to be shot during the evening hours only. And then, eight-year-old Sarah Polly could only work a few hours each night, so her scenes would be front-loaded to the start of any shooting day that required her. It also didn't help that many of Gilliam's top coordinators on the film were British, and none of them spoke Italian, while most of the crew were Italian who spoke no English. Filming slowed to a crawl, and the budget started going up again. As September moved into October, the production would move to the beaches of Almeria in Spain. But there would be a mix-up at the airport in Rome, and none of the costumes arrived in Spain with the company, resulting in yet another costly delay. Things got so bad that in late October, the film's completion guarantor, Film Finances, took over control of the production, and told Gilliam to get all the shots he needed in Spain by the first week of November. Then the financiers and Gilliam would regroup in London and go over what still needed to be completed to finish the film in a satisfactory order. One scene, involving a huge chessboard at the Sultan's palaces, was cut completely, while scenes involving the King and Queen of the Moon were reduced from a population in the thousands to just those two characters. Sean Connery, who Gilliam had worked with at the start of the decade in Time Bandits, would pull out of playing the King of the Moon. Robin Williams would hear about the problems with the production and offer himself up to play the King of the Moon for free, but the production would not be allowed to use his image or name 
on any of the advertising materials. Sting, a neighbor of Gilliam's at the time, would film a small cameo for the movie for free as well. And the film would also feature fellow Python Eric Idle, Time Bandits' Jack Purvis, Brazil's Jonathan Price, the great Oliver Reed, Bill Patterson, the star of housekeeping director Bill Forsyth's previous film, Comfort and Joy, and, in her first film performance, Uma Thurman. Before filming with Williams and Italian acting legend Valentina Cortez as the Queen of the Moon could get started, the production had so little money left, Gilliam needed to revert back to his early days of animation to make the moon sequence work. Out were the huge sets that were supposed to be built at the famed Pinewood Studios, just outside London, where the likes of the Star Wars series and the Bond series and many Marvel movies had been filmed. Gilliam instead would rip out his detailed sketches of what the sets were supposed to look like and arrange them on a large black board sitting atop a table and then filming the cutout sketches moving forwards and backwards and all over the place. The final moon sequence is perhaps the most bizarre thing Gilliam has ever made. And according to the director, the final film was completed at a budget of just under $35 million, the original budget set up at Fox, while the claim of nearly $47 million budget for the film came from the completion guarantor, Film Finance. It is said that a lot of the bad press that came out during the filming of the movie was from a lawyer for Film Finance, who happened to be the son of a producer who regularly made movies with Ray Stark, and the negative tone set over the production was Stark's vitriolic payback for Putnam's treatment of the producer, which we discussed in the previous episode. When the film finally opened in the United States, it would only play in 46 theaters that first weekend. And while the opening weekend gross of $597,000 might seem small, its nearly $13,000 per screen average would be the second highest in the nation, only behind the two-screen opening of the new Robert De Niro movie Jackknife. In its second weekend, the film would gross another $432,000 from those same 46 theaters, with its nearly $9,400 per screen average again being the second highest in the nation, just behind the single-screen playdate of James Ivory's Slaves of New York. Did Columbia judge the movie all wrong? Could they possibly have a hit film? For its third weekend, the studio would book the film on an additional 42 screens, and the per-screen average would be nearly identical to the previous weeks, and it would be the highest of all films playing nationwide. But then, Columbia just kind of did nothing more for it. At its widest point of release in its 12th week, Muchausen played in only 120 theaters nationwide. As a Gilliam fan annoyed that the film might not ever open in Santa Cruz, where I was living at the time, I would drive nearly 50 miles to see Munchausen when it popped up at a small theater just outside Monterey. It was important to me to support a filmmaker whose work inspired me, because not a lot of people did with Gilliam and Munchausen. Columbia would stop tracking the film after 13 weeks, and just over $8 million in ticket sales. Ironically, considering all the trouble he had with them on Munchausen, Gilliam would team with the Columbia TriStar team for his next film, 1991's The Fisher King. Although, to be fair, 
Sony was now the owner of the company, and Don Steele, who Gilliam blamed for sabotaging the release of Munchausen, would be no longer with the company. And that is where we'll end this episode. The now fourth and final episode of this miniseries will be available in a couple days. Thank you for listening. We will talk again very soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, produced, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. (laughs) 